But when they put this little house around the well, there were only like two people that could be in there at a time. So the women were not able to do the same things. And so they weren't using it because it wasn't serving all of the purposes that a water source actually has for their community. Um, so the anthropologists brought this data back. They made the decision to take down the little house. It wasn't super necessary. And so now the well is being used um, because we now have an understanding of all of the roles of a water source for the community. So it just wasn't just H2O. It was a lot more than that. Um, and I heard that story just a couple days ago in an anthropology class that I'm taking this summer. It blew my mind. And all of the other ways that I, as I walk through life, am making assumptions about people and the ways that I'm kind of imposing an idea of how they live their life and what they need and the way that we're all doing that and just seeking to learn more and understand how much I don't understand. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's live webcast, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney, and I hope you have fully recovered from the 4th of July, which makes me think of sparklers, which in turn makes me think of today's guest, Anyone who meets Krista Fernando knows that she sparkles. She has been one of our favorite leadership fellows at the Howenstein Center, and she recently graduated from Grand Valley State University with a degree in biomedical sciences. She also has been one of the stars in our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, where she has excelled and also made possible, we also helped make possible the opportunity for her to live abroad in Belize. After gap year, Krista will embark on her next adventure, medical school. And we'll talk to her about all these things in just a moment. My conversation with Krista will go about 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. So feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Thanks so much for joining me on today's webcast, Krista. Thanks, Gleaves. It's an honor. How's your summer going? It's going really well. You know, it's been obviously very interesting and difficult, but it's good for me to be with my family going through this. So that's been an unexpected blessing. Absolutely. Well, tell us, Krista, tell viewers a little about your background, your family, where you grew up, your high school, and why you chose to come to Grand Valley, those sorts of things. Okay, so I suppose when I start talking about, I guess, my origin story, both of my parents are immigrants. And while I don't think about that fact every day, it has played a role in every day of my life. <clears throat> my mom immigrated from Egypt when she was really young. Um, escaping some religious oppression against Christians in the country. And my dad immigrated from Sri Lanka um, when he was 18 for college. And so I was born in Grand Rapids with my three other siblings. We were raised here. Um, and then I attended Grand Valley State University. Um, I just recently graduated, as you said, with biomedical science and environmental studies as a minor as well. And I became really passionate about um, service, specifically through medicine, because I love um, the body, and I love science, um, and as well as systemic health disparities is something that's recently been a big interest of mine, uh, hence the gap year opportunity that I'll be doing at Cherry Health. We'll be looking at reasons that people aren't able to access resources. Um, we've gotten really good at providing resources for people, 
Um, but there seems to be other factors that prevent people from feeling able or worthy of accessing them. So I'll be doing some of that work as well as joining their research division to kind of investigate why we see health disparities along racial and ethnic lines. Well, gosh, there's a whole lot to unpack in what you've just said. What are some of the other causes you think of these disparities that you're talking about, especially in delivery of medical services, healthcare? Mm -hmm. So when I went to Belize, we can open with that. That's kind of led to this whole world of thought. Um, I took two classes and I learned about the anthropology field for the first time, especially medical anthropology. So that's how um, people's culture and people's history affects how they view medicine, what they understand to be wellness, what they understand to be illness and causes of disease. And in turn, what I'm interested in is how those perceptions affect the way that they interact with a very Americanized healthcare system. So the way that we do healthcare, you go to a primary care physician, um, you get your immunizations when you're born, those things can be just kind of rote. And we understand that as the system that we're in. But other countries, they might see a sickness and they might think it's a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. Or we might think that there's an emotional problem, like a mental illness, and we don't know how to solve it. And they might have a lot of tools for solving those kinds of things that are totally out of our wheelhouse. So understanding those differences is something that I've become really passionate about in incorporating with healthcare, especially as the U.S. becomes more and more diverse. Um, it's more important for physicians to understand any healthcare providers, to understand that patients are carrying in with them sometimes a completely different frame of understanding of medicine. So some reasons or something interesting things that I've seen as causes for you know, not accessing care. I heard a really interesting story uh, the other day about freshwater wells that people were digging in Africa. So it was like a nonprofit, they were going to you know, drought stricken areas and digging up wells um, to help people access clean water and not need to walk super far. Um, and it was a great service. So they go to this one village and they dig this well and they put a little protected house around it. Um, and then a, a little while later, they come back and they see that for some reason, people are not using the well, even though it's way closer than the other source of water that they had. And so they sent in an anthropologist because logically it made no sense. So to you know, developers and engineers, they're like, we don't understand. So an anthropologist went in, talks to people, lives with them, and realizes that the well has always been a, a really important place of social interaction. So women get there in the morning, they all sit, they all talk while they're getting their water. They catch up on the social news, like social responsibilities, family networks are formed. So it's really an important place, an important event kind of in the culture. But when they put this little house around the well, there were only like two people that could be in there at a time. So the women were not able to do the same things. And so they weren't using it because it wasn't serving all of the purposes that a water source actually has for their community. Um, so the anthropologist brought this data back. They made the decision to take down the little house. It wasn't super necessary. And so now the well is being used um, because we now have an understanding of all of the roles of a water source for community. So it just wasn't just H2O. 
it was a lot more than that. Um, and I heard that story just a couple days ago in an anthropology class that I'm taking this summer. And it blew my mind. And all of the other ways that I, as I walk through life, am making assumptions about people and the ways that I'm kind of imposing an idea of how they live their life and what they need and the way that we're all doing that and just seeking to learn more and understand how much I don't understand. That is just fascinating, Krista. It, and it sounds as if we ought to be smarter as a, as a society and send the anthropologists in first and not last to figure out what the problem is, right? Yeah, in certain instances, it would be really helpful. They are employed heavily by the government. Um, and I think that is really important. But yeah, their work goes, I think, unnoticed. I never even discovered the field until my junior year when I went to Belize. I signed up for that class because I was interested in ethnomedicine and plants for medicine. I didn't even realize it was an anthropology course. Um, by the end, I was sold. <laughs> and now I'm actually planning to apply to some graduate anthropology programs um, to include that in my future career. So you'll have this almost a double major, a medical school and also mm -hmm. some anthropology, sociology, so that you understand the people with whom you're, you're dealing, the people who've asked you to treat them. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that, that is, it, it's so obvious when you describe it like that, because otherwise people aren't accessing it. It reminds me of a story that I learned about long ago when I lived in Colorado, and a philanthropist had noticed that the coal miners in South Central Colorado uh, had sanitation problems. Uh, they, you know, weren't really practicing the German theory and uh, they weren't washing their hands and so forth. And so there was a lot of disease. So this, this philanthropist donated a lot of bathtubs, bathtub for every home. Well, the people, it turns out, were very devout Roman Catholics and they saw the bathtub and they didn't want to use it for the intended purpose. They saw it to create a shrine to the Virgin Mary. So they would set the bathtub up in their little yard so that it's half buried, and they would put the Virgin Mary icon, the statues in there, uh, and the little grouping of the Holy Family and that kind of thing. And, you know, no one understood why they were doing this, but they wanted to be, you know, spiritually clean as it were. You know, mm -hmm. to them, that's what mattered, and that's what they saw in the bathtubs. Fascinating, but no one bothered to ask them prior to delivery of the bathtubs. And you know, the same with your story. You know, we didn't bother to ask before we put the little shelter around the well. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it sounds as if you, I mean, give me an idea. How many cultures are there in say the United States? Wow. Yeah, I don't, whew, I could not answer that, but it's, I couldn't imagine Let's see, there's like 210 countries in the world, right? Something like that? Something like that. I would say very few are not represented at all in the States. And so, some of those countries have three or four groupings of very different people within them. We learned that in the Iraq war, for example, that mm -hmm. you had three major different groups of people uh, just in Iraq. Uh, and there were others, of course, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the number of cultures might actually be larger than 200 cultures. So it sounds to me as if you could be quite busy just 
boning up on some of these yeah. these cultures. Well, your own background equips you, Krista. I mean, you're telling us that you have an Egyptian parent, you have a Sri Lankan parent. Um, I imagine there are a lot of issues right there in the family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Can, do you feel free to talk about what you observed growing up and actually sensitized you to the kind of work that you aspire to do? Yeah, so <clears throat> as a child of immigrants, I'm actually what's called a third culture kid. So that's a child who's been raised in the culture of their parents, been raised in the culture of America, but also exists in a weird lineal culture that is a mix between the both of those. And because I have two parents from two different countries, it's kind of like fourth, um, because I've never met another Sri Lankan Egyptian in my life, but I live in West Michigan, which is a community of primarily Dutch Americans. And I grew up around kids who assumed, could, could assume safely a lot of things about their neighbors, um, about um, you know, their religious beliefs, primarily Christian, um, socioeconomic status based on your neighborhood, um, that your grandparents, you know, kind of probably lived in the United States, didn't live somewhere else, a lot of your traditions and your rituals. But when I grew up, I was really fragmented at first. Um, I would go to the east side of the state where my mom's side of family lives, and everybody's making jokes in Arabic, and I like don't understand them. And we eat all this amazing food, and then we'll fly to Texas and visit my dad's side of family, and we'll eat great food, and we'll talk about, you know, Sri Lanka and things going on there. And my grandfather will tell us stories about when he was in the Navy. And then come back here to my all-white community, and until I went to high school, those pieces of my life never really came together. So when they came together for the first time, and I realized, I guess I realized that I was brown. I realized that I was not like my neighbors, and I was not like my friends, and that was saddening for a little bit, but it's also a reason to celebrate, um, because I'm really unique. I was made this way and I have a role in this community. There are so many times that the community that my parents lived in, that my mom moved to, uh, where she was not understood. She experienced a lot of racism as a child. Um, When she immigrated, it was the late 60s and she came to Detroit. And so she was five. And so she just started in school and my mom's side of family have, from Egypt had zero understanding of the civil rights movement that had been going on. They came for religious freedom, which they were thought that America could provide freely. Um, and she experienced so much racism in school, lots of bullying, um, lots of people, you know, making tons of assumptions about her capabilities, mainly that they are less. And this whole like re evaluation of race in America has actually dug up a lot of stuff in my family that I didn't even know existed. I did not expect that my family would be doing a hard work of looking back on the trauma that we've experienced in this country and trying to sort through that through the lens of our faith and trying to find ways that we can reconcile the fact that we are different, but I don't know any other home. This is the only home that I've ever known. I go to Sri Lanka and Egypt and I am so out of place, so out of place. Everybody knows I'm American. Um, 
And how do, let me interrupt. How do they know you're American? Oh, it's, well, firstly, I don't look completely Egyptian or Sri Lankan. Um, but other than that, even my cousins were completely Egyptian. It's in the way you walk, especially as a woman. Um, you walk more confident, you look men in the eye, the way you talk, especially when my cousins try to speak Arabic, the accent is super obvious. Um, they can just tell that you're definitely not from there. And how do they feel about that? Do they accept you or is there a prejudice against you in Sri Lanka for being American? So I went to Sri Lanka when I was eighth grade. I don't have any memories of that. We really went as tourists. We did visit some of our family, um, my really extended family on my dad's side. And I don't remember any of that. Definitely people knew we were tourists, so they knew that they could try to pull a fast one when they're trying to sell us something. But my grandmother was always there and she and her Sinhalese is perfect. And she helped us navigate that situation. But we were really tourists in, when we visited both those countries. Wow. So what a rich experience you've had. Now, I, I would like to ask you, and I hope you're comfortable answering this question, do your parents ever feel that they made the wrong decision to come here? Or all in all, are they glad that they've raised their kids in the American environment? Just curious. Yeah, I think anytime that they've, you know, come back to that reflective question, they've decided America was the, the right decision especially to raise kids, to get a good education, um, to be set up for success in a safe environment. Um, there have been times, I won't lie, that my parents have felt that we don't belong in our community, um, that it's a hostile environment for people of color. And I think especially recently, that has been some, a conclusion a lot of people of color are coming to, that they feel like, America isn't ready to stand behind them and support them for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We were talking to a really close friend of ours who's an immigrant from the Congo and he's a pastor at a church and we know his family really well. Um, and when everything went down, he had a really reflective moment by himself when he saw the video of George Floyd and he was so full of pain and he just came to himself and he realized this is too heavy to bear. I need to leave, I wanna leave. And he's a type of person to just kind of vocalize his emotions in order to process them. So he was calling his partner, like his co-pastor. Um, I'm going back to the Congo, I can't do this. America's so hostile. Um, my family's, I don't feel safe. My family's not safe. We've been experiencing prejudices. I can't do this, talk to his, you know, his wife. Um, his wife was like, okay, go ahead. Yes, think that, let me know what you conclude. And he came back to this passage in the Bible, in the book of John, where um, the disciples are feeling, so the disciples that were following Jesus are feeling that what they're being told to do is too difficult. And they're living under Roman reign, and they feel like they don't belong there with their beliefs. And Jesus, their leader, asked them, do you want to leave me? Do you want to leave this way? You can. And one of his followers named Peter looked at him and said, but where would we go? And that was the line that came to this pastor when he decided, I can't do America anymore. He's like, where are you going to go? Because the Congo isn't super safe either. And if he went there, his mixed kids and his 
Caucasian wife wouldn't feel accepted, but also his communities here, the church that he serves, in a way he has a commitment to stay and suffer with the people that he loves and the people that he belongs to, which I think is very noble and I hope to attain that one day. Um, but this sense of it's difficult, but I choose the difficult and I choose to stay in the place of injustice because I hope it will change. And I know that injustice is easier when you're with others. And so that's a lot of the allying that the entire nation has done where people of color are coming together because they need that support. I can't even remember the question you asked me. <laughs> no, I, I just whether your parents felt that overall on balance, despite the racism that they had experienced, mm. the difficulties, was it a decision they still would make today because of the opportunities perhaps they've had, they wanted mm -hmm. to raise their children perhaps in an American environment, that kind of thing. And I think you answered it quite, quite well, Krista. Um, and it, it will help, I think, our audience understand what a young person such as yourself who has two immigrant parents, what you go through, um, you know, whether it's here in West Michigan or in, in larger communities. So where did you get this, this love of service and this drive to become a doctor, uh, to become well-versed in your cultural competencies so that you can make a difference in that way in this world? It's definitely been a long process, nothing quick about coming to a value for service that's deep rooted. I'm just still growing in it, of course. Um, my earliest memory of kind of service is my mom, when we would drive around going anywhere errands on a really hot summer day, and there would be someone standing at the bus stop with their groceries, and it is hot out, like so hot. My mom would pull over, ask them where they're going, pick them up, we'd drive them to their apartment, the next door, whatever. And there was always this kind of like, when my mom pulled over, like this disgruntled shuffle of us kids in the back because we had to move seats and like get closer together to make room for this person who was gonna be able to sit in the passenger seat. Um, we always like kept it down because it was our mom. Um, and I remember that she, she was raised in poverty and she was raised without privilege in America and in Egypt. So what leads her to feel a sense of giving back? Like I have the capacity to give back. And when I asked her that, she never, she, she didn't respond that she had that. What she had was a sense of, I used to be that person. Me and my sister, we rode our bikes through high school everywhere. We'd never had another car. We had one car that always broke down. And so she knows what it's like to stand on, you know, at a bus stop and pick somebody up because it's hot. Hey mom. And that was something that meant a lot to me. So the word that comes to mind for that is kinship. She felt that she belonged to the people that were standing on the bus stop, that they were her family, that they were her neighbors. Um, so the language that I got to use to kind of articulate this different drive for service comes from Father Greg Boyle, who is the, he runs Homeboy Industries, which is the largest and most successful gang intervention service in America. It's based in Los Angeles. 
and I listened to a podcast from him. He's a great storyteller. And so I bought both of his books and read them. And they are today my favorite books. And he's my favorite author because he is a white man who grew up in privilege in LA and he has found, you know, a service position among a highly diverse neighborhood with huge gang activity in LA. And he was there when there were the Watts riots. He was there with the riots in the 90s. Um, and his language of compassion and his language of mutuality, he calls it, that he is not here to give other people what they need. He's not there to teach other people what they need to learn. He's there to be in relationship with them. And in relationship, he reminds people of who they are at the core, that at the core, they are compassionate human beings. And so it completely reframed service for me. Service is this kind of unidirectional, I have, you don't, let's equalize, um, was very much dismantled. And I, I like that. It's much more sustainable to have an idea of, I am here to be with you and you are gonna be with me. And we're gonna share what we have and we're gonna share our lives. And together in relationship, we're gonna remind each other of the good that we can do in the world. And out of that, like greater thriving is gonna come. So I highly recommend his books if any of that language sounded confusing. He's a really compelling storyteller. Um, so it was a very easy read, but I could reread it over and over because it's very deep. So that was a really big step in the formation of my ideas of service, as well as you know going abroad a number of times um, with my aunt who has a nonprofit in Egypt um, where she works with orphans and widows. I've done that a couple of times and that's also been very impactful seeing poverty and levels I've never seen in my life. Mm. Compelling. Now, Krista, tell us a little bit, speaking of going abroad, one of the projects that you undertook here at the Cook Leadership Academy at the Hallenstein Center was to go to Belize. And tell us a little bit about that year. You and I had a fascinating conversation about some of the things you learned in Belize. So I'd just like to open it up to you to tell our viewers about Belize and your experience there. Mm -hmm. So as I said before, I took medical anthropology classes that I was not expecting to be medical anthropology classes. Um, but I ended up transforming the way that I thought about um, working with other cultures as well as medicine. So some of the tenets of anthropology in general are the idea that no culture is better or worse than another culture. And it's this idea of cultural relativism that you have to go into another culture and, and understand that the practices that they have, the rituals that they have are all rational they all make sense within the context of that person the people's history so you know we think about you know tribes in exotic places that do what we think are super strange things um and we just like that makes no sense how could they you know so uncivilized you might think but in a way they have been developing in a completely different environment with a completely different history and there are reasons for absolutely everything they do that are rational. So the anthropologist very intentionally sets aside bias in those ways. They're not making any moral judgments. They're just trying to understand other people. And I like that peaceful approach. 
um, because before you can initiate any change in another place, you have to understand that place. Um, so when I was in Belize, some of the main things that we talked about were colonization um, and Western medicine that was coming in um, to try to um, <clears throat> increase the public health that was going on. And the main ethnic groups in Belize are Mayans and Garifuna. So Mayans, you know, you have Mayan empire, like forever ago, invented zero, whatever. They still exist. I did not know that. But when the Spaniards came and destroyed the empire, the people stayed. They didn't leave. The Spaniards left. Um, and so we met full-blooded Mayans that still speak the Mayan language. There's like 27 Mayan languages. Wild. Um, because they're all over Central America and different regions. And they still practice a lot of the rituals, a lot of the medicines, which includes you know, really interesting plants that can do really powerful things if used in the right ways. Um, and we learned about how when the Spanish came, they brought Roman Catholicism and kind of enforced it pretty liberally. But they never sought to understand what the Mayans believed because they thought that what they were believing was nonsense. So today, there is a lot of conflict in that area between Catholicism and Mayan religion because people are like go to Catholic mass because that's what they've done. That's what their parents did. But very few people have an understanding of the values and the philosophy of Christianity. That's what, at least what I observed. Um, and then they also are holding on in some way to their Mayan heritage, everybody to different degrees, um, but to people who are stoutly Mayan, people who are stoutly Catholic, there is a ton of tension that Catholicism is kind of whitewashing the country and um, taking apart, you know, the beauty of the culture um, that the Spaniards kind of came in and enforced. So we came and we kind of sat in that very uncomfortable space because we were tourists, right? We were from America and Canada, white people places, but we also were here to understand them. And the relationships we were able to develop and the stories we were able to hear, the trauma of colonization is still there. It's still very valid. People are still afraid of their rituals being lost of their land being exploited, of their goods being taken away, um, of losing their families and their livelihoods. And I was stunned to say the least. Colonization happened in like the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, I don't know. And it's still painful for them. And we visited hospitals and they have to understand that. You know, physicians that come in from the UN to try to help with the malaria and the typhoid, they come in with, you know, the standard treatments that we have in the US for malaria and typhoid when we send people abroad. And the way that medicine works has to be super different because you're collaborating often with mind healers who are on the other side of the patient. So something I became really passionate about was maternal health. So the way that Mayans do maternal health care is both unique, beautiful, and it's also really effective. And it addresses things like maternal mental health, 
that we're not great at in the United States. And so midwives are a huge thing in mind culture, but the maternal, maternal mortality rate in Belize has not been good for a number of years. Many women die for reasons that in Western science believe we can fix. So they've instituted laws to try to make sure that more women are given a complete checkup and that we can identify all the risk factors for them so that we can help women live after their birth and pregnancies. However, one of the ways they did that was they outlawed midwives. To be a midwife in Belize, you have to be licensed by the UN and that's both expensive and difficult and rare in Belize. And so midwifery has been on a steady decline to extinction for the past number of years. Um, and we spoke to one of the last midwives who serves in the area that we were living because she got licensed and certified, but she also learned mind techniques and local techniques um, from her grandparents and her mother. And the way that she has brought those together to really successful birth plans that also advocate for the patient. She, people like her are going extinct. People who are bridging those two cultures um, are going extinct. And it was really sad, but it was also really telling of the way that our healthcare system, which is so science-based and kind of results-based, we come up with these best practices. But best practices, that's all they are. They're the best for the majority of people. What about the people on the margins? That we're starting to see the women in Belize, for example. How do we make sure that healthcare is tweaked and amended to be most effective for them as well? That's a lot of work. That's a big task. That's what this midwife was doing. And she was making sure that women in rural areas who were two hours from a hospital but were required to have their birth at a hospital made got their way there, got advocacy so that they could have their birth at home if that was necessary. So yeah, those are some of the wild things that I learned. It was definitely the beginning. It was not even a deep understanding of all of the nuances of that culture. But you got exposed to something, Krista, that'll change your life. You're forever going to be aware in all the next steps of your career of how important it is to understand culturally what's going on with people who are raised in different reared in different circumstances in the world and even in our own country here mm -hmm. in the United States. Fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Cook Leadership Academy, uh, which prepared you to go to Belize and I hope has prepared you for many other steps of your life. Tell us about your experience at the Cook Leadership Academy within the Hauenstein Center, how it's helped you with these experiences. So I was a fellow candidate in CLA for three years, which was a really tremendous opportunity and a tremendous gift because as a sophomore, when I joined, I got to be in a community of people who were mostly older than me, just by a little bit, but were very passionate, well-developed personally and professionally. And that was rare for me. I didn't have a lot of that community in my sophomore year, coming into my sophomore year of college. Um, lots of just freshmen who were kind of floundering and don't know what they want to pursue, but when I entered CLA, people, they knew what values they were passionate about and they were ready to have that lead them to picking their career. 
So even if they weren't decided, they knew that things like social justice or ethics were important to them. And then there was also, of course, the really great professional and personal training that we got with self-reflection events, um, which it's a really, the name self-reflection events doesn't tell you a lot about what we did. And what we did was a lot of vulnerability work and understanding who we are as people as a foundation to understanding how we can be better leaders. So that was very much um, perhaps the most systematic leadership transformation we could have. It wasn't so much like how to deal with a large group of people, how to speak in front of a large, how to deal with these specific conflicts that come up, although there was a little bit of that. It was mostly, you know, parsing out what are the things that, you know, turn me on and get me excited and what are the things that really bother me that I'm not paying attention to and what if they're things from my past and from past experiences and when new hard things come up am I prepared to deal with them and we came up with tools a toolkit and a new way of thinking about those kinds of problems that we would run into my own experience with having anxiety after my freshman year of college was really shaking my foundations to say the least that fall when i came to the cook leadership academy it wasn't something that i pushed to the side because i felt like it didn't belong in this environment where everybody was successful in fact it was perhaps the biggest thing that i had to engage with and confront when i was in those spaces because we were asked to look at the deepest part of ourselves and the parts of ourselves that we don't like to accept and to realize that it's okay that I turned out this way. And that's actually telling, telling about who I am as a person and what I'm sensitive about. Um, and so that was a, a really big gift. And it was really key for helping me navigate, you know, the challenges of college, helping me prepare and understand that I have what it takes to do medical school, that that's something I want. Um, and of course, through the Cook Leadership's funding, I was able to go to Belize and then anthropology changed my life and I wanna continue studying that. Um, I also had an opportunity with funding to go to Chicago to Northwestern University and do some research with them in medical social sciences, which was a little bit similar. Um, and we got to really investigate, you know, other ways of doing healthcare outside of the Western model. Was mentoring an important part of this whole process? Oh, tremendously. Oh, huge, I forgot that. So I have really good mentor through the Cook Leadership Academy. Um, she's a doctor, if she's watching, hi, Dr. Quartz. <laughs> um, and she has been a fantastic listener as I process endlessly a lot of things with her and providing wisdom as a woman in healthcare, also as a Christian in healthcare, um, working with a really diverse population. How do we make sure that our faith isn't bringing in a bias, but it's bringing a place of synergy where I can align my beliefs with someone else's beliefs um, without carrying in assumptions. Um, so that's been really powerful. She's also helped me kind of logistically look at medical schools and some professional development. And then uh, there's also been kind of informal mentors that I've had, you know, a parent of one of my best friends who's really come alongside me and encouraged me. Um, and then through CLA, I had a mentee that I was able to check in on. And we didn't do a whole lot together, but 
I definitely appreciated our relationship. She's tremendously creative um, and a very deep thinker, and she loves the use of story and narrative for helping people understand things and helping people change. And I, I just, I was so in awe by her passion. And so we were able to check in on her, and I was following her blog, and it was a real honor to be able to, you know, kind of follow her journey. You mentioned Christianity, your own personal faith. Tell us a little bit more. I mean, as I listen to you and just take a few notes here, you know, you've talked a lot about servant leadership, ethical leadership. You've talked about transformational leadership through self-reflection. Uh, so that you are actually in the process of becoming not only a different kind of leader, but a different kind of person. What's the role of faith in all of this, Krista? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned to you um, kind of earlier on our prep call that because I was raised in a faith tradition, it's difficult for me, as it's difficult for everybody, to kind of step outside of myself and look at the ways that it has manifested in my actions and the ways I've interacted with people and the decisions I've made. Um, but I think that's telling in and of itself because my faith tradition, my spirituality, the way I view my role in relation to other people, my role in relation to the earth and to a divine power has really um, influenced my values. So, you know, the things that I think are important and the things that I'm willing to put energy into. And what I've noticed about values is that if your values are strong and not necessarily like good or bad, just um, values that you hold tightly, decisions that you make are very easy, even if it's a decision for a hard thing. So when my aunt decided to start this orphanage, it was no easy thing. She's a full-time neurologist, so was her husband. Um, they started a 501c3 in Southern Egypt and but she had a value of compassion and being there for the least of these, for people who don't have any hope in a country with really low social services. And so that decision was not as hard as it would have been if somebody was like, this is the right thing to do, but I don't want to do it. And I don't have an internal motivation. So my faith has provided a lot of those values. One of them being service um, and being sitting alongside people who are less advantaged and giving me a desire to be in relationship with them. And Father Greg Boyle in his books has played a big role in that as well. Um, so I think that if I were to sum up how faith has transformed my life, it's informed my values and my values have then informed my decisions. Very good. Well, we have viewers queued up to ask questions, Krista. Let's bring them into our conversation. One of our viewers asks you, who are you looking to as a role model in your leadership journey? That's a great question. Um, definitely my aunt who started the orphanage in Egypt. Um, her thoughts on the importance of compassion and the idea of compassion as a gift um, have been really transformational for me. Um, my sister and her work, she does food justice work. So You're talking about Hannah, right? Yeah, Hannah. Also in the Cook Leadership Academy. Go Hannah. Hi, mm -hmm. Hannah. So she graduated um, from Grand Valley quite a few years ago as a Cook Leadership Fellow and went into full-time nonprofit social justice work. 
um, and her tenacity in that has been really transformational. I consider Father Greg Boyle to be a mentor of mine, though a literary mentor because I've never actually met him. It is a goal of mine to go to LA and see Homeboy Industries and the work they do. Very good. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance, asks another viewer, your clear passion for people and their culture with your experience and strengths in all of your research and science? How do you, how do you balance those two things? Good question. Yeah, that is a really important question. Um, so I, I have loved science since I was young and there isn't a whole like beautiful story of how I came into it in the way that I think that there is for my role of leadership, service, my desire for cultural interaction. So medicine was an easy choice because of those values. Um, and then when I went to Belize and anthropology uh, kind of entered my life and I felt a need to be more involved in understanding the systems that people interact in, I was like, I need to study this. Wait, do I need to get a PhD? Oh my gosh, am I abandoning medicine? Ha! Ah. So I had, you know, this minor crisis. But then I realized that um, medicine was direct service. And direct service is always something that has been important to me. And I want to keep it in my life for sure, where I'm, you know, acting change in people's lives every day, you know, working with the people whose lives I want to change. Whereas anthropology can often be more of a background service role, at least the kind of anthropology I want to study, where I want to you know, make sure that we're understanding other cultures, understanding, you know, how certain treatments are affecting them, the way that we are asking for people to take care of themselves. Um, but often when you're doing research and you're reading and you're holed up in an office kind of typing away, that's service, but it's not direct service. So a value of mine, the reason that I decided to pursue both of these things was to keep both direct service and kind of indirect service discovery and systematic um, change in my future career. Then they actually dovetail quite nicely. Very I mean, what you learn in discovery complements your interactions with people mm -hmm. and you've advanced in both ways then, right? Yes, absolutely. Another viewer asks, what advice would you give incoming freshmen at Grand Valley State University? That's a really good question. First of all, if there are any incoming freshmen watching, congratulations. That's right. um, graduating, getting accepted at college, that's such a big deal. Um, and you didn't get the celebration that you deserve. Um, I think if I were to give advice, um, there are a lot of preconceived notions on what college is. And I would say that you find the college experience that you look for. You know, people say, oh, that's a school full of nerds or that's a party school. Well, you will find those different scenes at any college, in any city, any place you go. So what you look for, you will find. So if you look for opportunities to challenge yourself and opportunities to change, you'll find it. If you look for 
opportunities to explore something new and you take a class that you, you know, didn't think you'd be interested in. I took um, Spanish classes because I decided I wanted to, you know, have a little bit of understanding of another language. And I ended up taking like three years of Spanish. And that's become something that's really important to me that I was not expecting. Um, and I started doing some environmental studies classes because I find that that is also really important to health, environmental justice, especially in the United States. And so I got a minor in environmental justice where I was not expecting. Some things that, you know, less academic. I love to dance. Um, and so I took recreational dance classes at ballet. One I took with a friend, that was a great time. Um, and so I, I curated my college experience and that's what you can do you don't have to follow any one path, which is intimidating, I know. Um, but you just take it step by step, day by day. Um, and whatever you decide, college can be transformational for you. It most certainly can be. And people have to be alert to all the ways it can be transformational. It's not just in your intellectual life. It is you know, so extracurricular and social in so many ways, the way we grow in our understanding. Krista, is there anything else that you would like to mention before we wrap up? Because I do have one more question for you. Um, let's see, I wrote a little list just in case I missed something. Oh, yes, okay. So going off of my environmental justice thing and my environmental studies minor, for my senior project, I wanted to do something related to stormwater on campus. So Grand Valley is really great at um, taking care of the water that lands on our property and making sure it doesn't add to the pollution of greater bodies of water. Um, but I did a project through the Making Waves Initiative at Grand Valley, which is a two-year kind of whole university focus on water. Um, and so my research and my projects got published on that website, which is, I'm really thankful for that. It was a great opportunity. Um, and right now I'm continuing to work with them after everything um, all of the race riots that once they started, I realized that water and justice are really tied together, Even like the Flint water crisis in our own state is an example. And so right now I'm continuing to work with them just like a volunteer basis to do some research into water and justice. Um, how, like, what does that look like historically? in the United States, in other countries? What are people doing to repair that relationship? Um, what are the differences that exist? You know, do people have less water based on race or socioeconomic status? Spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> um, and so that's been something that's really interesting and we're kind of, kind of assembling a whole toolbox for professors to be able to insert these water issues into their classes. So if anybody's interested, you can look it up, gvsu.edu slash making waves. Um, a lot of resources that were coming together, um, some anti-racism resources, if anybody's interested in exploring racism in other lenses like water. So that's the last we're, kind of plug. <laughs> well, no, you came to a great university to study those things. We're Lakers after all here at GVSU. And we do study water issues and you're in a great state to study those things. I mean, water, is Michigan's most conspicuous natural resource. And I've heard the experts, uh, Al Steinman and others say, I mean, water's like our century's gold, like uh, the oil of previous centuries. Uh, fresh water is so important. 
everything from microagriculture to drinking water quality, obviously, from the Flint experience, many other ways. It's so elemental to the quality of our lives. So you're in a great environment to do that. Well, the question I wanted to ask you, I like to ask all the young people whom I have interviewed in the course of the Lunch and Learn since the end of March, and that is, Krista, what is your, what is your capstone? And you look out at your career, eventually, what do you want to achieve that you would, you would be able to say, I was able to achieve that, and now uh, I can pass the torch to the next generation. What's your capstone? I'm not sure how my final impact will manifest in the world if I'll write papers or start an organization or move to another country. So I think um, physically my capstone could look like a lot of different things, uh, but something that has always been important to me is um, showing people that they're not alone. So I volunteer at a hospital. Well, not right now during coronavirus, we're not allowed. But my role was to just walk around the chronic care floor where people were there for you know weeks at a time. And after a while, you don't get a lot of visitors. I just walked around and talked to people. And I didn't have any agenda when I walked in their room, whereas the healthcare workers did. That's why they brought me in because people want to talk. People want relationships. I was able to walk in and listen to such a variety of stories and backgrounds. Um, some people talked about their, like why they were in the hospital and their illness. Lots of people didn't. And they talked about other things in their lives. And I was able to relate to them in different ways that I was not expecting. You know, shared experiences of just being afraid, being not in control. One time I met a lady older, um, actually very old African-American lady. She was so cheery. Um, and I asked her where she was from and she was from Chicago. Well, I had this internship in Chicago. So I was like, oh, where in Chicago are you from? Maybe I know it. So I spent two months in Chicago, side note. So my geography is like 60% at best. So hit or miss if I know where she's from. She was from Cottage Grove. And I was like, I know where that is. That's at the end of the Green Line train because I had watched the train maps. I'd never been there, but I did know it was an extremely rough part of town. Um, and she had somehow gone to Grand Rapids, but we were able to relate to that. You know, I, I went to Chicago, I know where that is. And in Grand Rapids, nobody knew where that is. And for some reason, connecting even on a really small level and deciding that it was possible to connect changed everything in my relationships. And it made them so sweet and this was no longer a job. And for them, it was no longer a responsibility to be polite to the person in the room. They had an ally. And I think we all have that power. And I would love to continue to be a safe place for other people to be, feel understood, even if my experiences are radically different. And I would feel even prouder if other people took on that torch and started learning how to do that. Um, because I think it will be critical for each of our lives and our nation's future. Beautiful story, beautiful summation. Thank you, Krista Fernando, for being such an engaging guest on today's Lunch and Learn webcast. The viewers can now appreciate why we have been so privileged to mentor you in our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy. I invite those who've tuned in to fill out 
brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. Our next program features a regular at the Hallenstein Center, Dr. George Nash. Our friend Dr. Nash received his PhD in history from Harvard University and for the last decades has been the dean among scholars of America's conservative movement. I'm going to ask George, what is the conservative movement today in the age of Trump? And likewise, what is the Republican Party today in the age of Trump? What is the Democratic Party as a result of the changes in the Republican Party in the age of Trump? So you won't want to miss my in-depth conversation with George next Tuesday, July 14th. July 14th, by the way, is Gerald R. Ford's birthday. So tell your friends and colleagues to listen in. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.